Luke chapter 14, we'll read all of verses 1 through 24. This is page 1038 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, or come to say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So it struck me as I was getting back into Luke chapter 14 this week, how similar this is with a lot of what Paul was writing in the book of Philippians. 
Paul, in the book of Philippians, he's using a much more commanding or didactic tone of just saying, this is how you are to live when, when you are a, someone who is in Christ and you've accepted the gospel. This is what compassion looks like. This is what um, thinking less of yourself looks like. It's just kind of describing in very clear terms what, what the life of a Christian should look like. But what, what, what one who is united with Christ should live. Jesus, however, makes his points in different ways. He's, he's, this is a historical narrative, the Gospel of Luke is. And so what we're getting is this snapshot, this narrative of this experience in Jesus' life. And the way he is teaching is through these parables. But really, it's a very similar idea. And I suppose we shouldn't be surprised by that if we believe the Bible is one cohesive unit giving one centralized message. It would make sense that these things would, would come together. But we, we encounter some of these teaching events here this morning. What are the barriers? What are the barriers that keep us from enjoying all that Christ has for us? What are the barriers that keep people from enjoying all that Christ has for them? Some people think it's their sinfulness that uh, I'm so, and some people don't, that's why they don't want to come into the church. They want to hear the message of, of Christ, of the gospel. They think my sinfulness, they, they don't want me at church. My sinfulness is too big. I've done too many bad things. Um, there's no way that I could have anything to do with God. And they think that their sinfulness is what keeps them from Christ. But we all know that there's, there's no sin too great for the blood of Jesus, that Christ is, is blood is sufficient to cover every sin. When you've got men in the Bible who have done horrendous things, yet have found themselves in right standing with God through the work of Jesus Christ, we can confidently say that's not true. That's, that's a falsehood. That's what's keeping you from Christ. But some think... Their, their sinfulness keeps them from Christ. Some people think their intelligence keeps them from Christ. Um, we know so much and they're just so skeptical, um, you know, that there's, there's no way that, that any fair-minded, intelligent person can believe these sort of uh, big ideas. The people who go to church are those who are just kind of gullible, easily led into believing fantasy and believing fictional stories. They, don't, they, they think they're too intelligent. That's what keeps them from church. Some think... Some think um, that they're doing so well on their own that, that really what need would I have to go to church? I'm a good person. I, I've never killed anyone. I don't beat people up. Um, you know, I recycle. And so therefore, because I have done many good things, I care about all these nice things, I, I don't see the need for me to have any sort of right standing with Christ. And their self-righteousness keeps them from encountering all that Christ really does have for them. So this morning, we, take, we hear Jesus take up the case against that kind of person where their righteousness, their self-righteousness, their self-concern, their self-interest, thinking so highly of themselves, actually becomes a barrier for them to hear and to receive all that Christ has for them. Our main idea for this morning is that those who feed only their self-interest will have no part in Christ's feast. Those who feed only their self-interest will have no part 
in Christ's feast. And this is where Luke, I think, the, the tension and the, the, the main idea that, that Luke is bringing out to us in this large dinner narrative. So the tension has been building with Jesus and these Pharisees throughout the book of Luke. There's kind of there's been a there they're, they're, it's building this conflict. Remember um, the the past few chapters is really amping up the language, calling for them to repent, warning them of the judgment that is coming. And, and it's been building this tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they're, they're no friends of Jesus. Um, they did not, they're not the Doobie brothers. You know, Jesus is just all right with me. Anyone get that reference? Okay, all right. I thought a few might. They're not the, they, they, Jesus is not all right with them. They, they do not like Jesus. They're, they, they're against him. And so if you, you look back over where we've been, there's this, there's, Jesus is really upping the language speaking against this group of Pharisees. And here we find interaction again with them that doesn't go, doesn't go well, to, to put it lightly. It's really shocking, though. You try to put your head and your mind into the state, into the where you would be if, if you lived at this time. These Pharisees, how are these not the people Jesus loves? These are the super religious people. These are the these are the folks who they are the religious elite. They never miss a Sabbath service. They are by the book keeping the law. These are the people, they, they give to the church their money, their tithing. At one point, we hear they're so fastidious in their tithing that when they gather their, their dill and their cumin, they give a tenth of it. They, they're, they're tithing on their spices. They're so concerned with their external righteous. If we were alive back then, these would have been the ones that would have walked down and looked at those incredibly religious people. Surely God is happy with them. That's what we would have thought. And that's what makes this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees so important and fascinating and confusing on, on an external level. Why these should be the ones that Jesus really likes. But the Jesus sees through all of these external displays. The reality is this, if you only have superior human righteousness and you don't know Jesus, you don't have anything. If you, you can know endless amounts of Bible trivia and all sorts of questions and you could, you can nail that game, uh, you could do sword drills, find Jeremiah, whatever, and you're the first one there, you can be perfect in this Bible knowledge. But if you don't know Jesus, you don't have anything. And that's, that's where the rub comes with these Pharisees. Jesus, um, he speaks against them. He says, because you know, you know your Bibles, but you fail to see how they point to me. That if you, you can have all this external righteousness, but if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. These men are convinced of their own righteousness. They believe their own hype. We really are these great individuals that Jesus is... Maybe one of us, maybe he's like pretty, he doesn't, we can't find him doing anything wrong per se, but they're going to set him up here to try to say he does something wrong. But Jesus, he tears all this down. It all revolves around this dinner scene, right? Here we have another dinner scene. I, by my count, this is now the sixth. There's been five dinner scenes before this. It's interesting how the gospel um, of Luke and other gospels 
have certain scenery they like to set things up in. We had the, the first calling of Levi, the disciple, was at a fair a party that he threw for his friends to meet Jesus. He throws a party there. There's the, the, he goes to another Pharisee party and the woman washes his feet or that and he gets in big trouble because if he knew how sinful she was, he never allowed that. All this happening in a dinner scene, feeding to the 5,000, pretty big dinner scene. Um, more, uh, he gets in trouble again. He goes, he eats with Mary and Martha, another dinner scene, but then he goes to this last dinner scene before this one and he gets in trouble because he doesn't ceremonially wash his hands. Remember that whole fight? Between the Pharisees, Jesus, all of these, these meal and, and, and um, just dinner scenes. And so here we see another one, but this time there's, a, there's two trouble, there's two big uh, recurring themes at once. There's the dinner scene and there's a healing on the Sabbath. It's, they're gathering together on a Sabbath for this dinner scene and Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. Now, that's another recurring theme, right? We've seen Jesus healing people, doing things, well, I guess, doing things on the Sabbath they don't like. But here we have the, the coming together of these two realities. Jesus heals the man with the withered hand in Luke chapter 6 on the Sabbath day. And then just back in chapter 13, there's a lady who is bent over and Jesus straightens her up. And the big problem with that was it was on a Sabbath. So here we have this dinner scene and a healing on a Sabbath. What, which makes you wonder, is this just coincidence? Like, how can it happen that, I mean, they, they keep trying to trap him in this, he, and they don't like him healing people on the Sabbath. And so they invite him over to a dinner party. And what's up? Here's a, here's a man with dropsy, as they call it right here in front of him at this dinner party. And many commentators will believe this is actually a setup. This is intended to cause a problem. They're trying to catch Jesus doing something he shouldn't be doing. It's why it says in verse 1, they're watching him carefully. They have set up this big dinner party, and then what do they do? They go to the trouble. Let's find someone who's sick. It's a Sabbath. And put him somewhere Jesus can't miss him and see if he violates our rules on the Sabbath. And sure enough, Jesus violates their rules on the Sabbath. The man has dropsy. Um, what I'd read about what this is, is basically it's like um, edema, which is the, the water retention that can happen in a person that has internal organs that are failing. You know, when you have... Uh, you know, congestive heart failure, water builds up because that muscle is getting tight. That's, that's what's going on with this person's body. There's some sort of water retention, the, the kidneys, liver, something's not functioning well and they begin to build it. It's serious, right? I mean, if, you, if that's going on, it's not a, it's not a good thing. You're, you're in a dangerous place. And this is what this guy has. He's in serious trouble. But Jesus shows up and they wanted to see if Jesus would break their conception of the Sabbath by healing this man. Jesus knows their question. He knows their objection. What's he do? He heals him. He fully heals this man. However, he does it by repairing the internal organs of some type. Taking the water off. I mean, this is a miraculous healing. This isn't curing a backache. This isn't, you know, something like that. Healing a sprained ankle. He's fixing this guy's internal organs. And he, he heals this man. And it's, it's kind of obvious the setup because 
Verse 4, he, he heals them. He asks them, is it lawful to heal? They remain silent. He took them, healed them, and then Jesus sends them away. This guy doesn't belong at the party. He's not here as a Pharisee to, to be at the party. He's just here as a setup. He sends them away, and, and Jesus argues with them this reality. If, if they had a son or an ox even that fell into a well, which it's interesting, the man is full of water with this dropsy and well as being in the water. If you have a son or an ox who's in the water, don't you rescue them on the Sabbath? And the answer is, yeah. I mean, the son is an obvious one, but the oxen would just be because of the money. You don't want to lose. I mean, you know, ox is how you get your harvest. You, that's a lot of money. And so you don't let your ox die in the well because it's Sabbath because you want the money. Yet here is this man, this man created in the image of God that they put forward and they do not like Jesus healing this man on the Sabbath. What cold heartedness. I mean, you're just, you're supposed to look at this and just what, what lack of compassion to use this ailing man as a trap against Jesus towards their own selfish purpose. They are so interested in themselves, getting their way, proving their point that they have, they, they, they missed the whole idea. They, they've missed the boat. They, there's no rejoicing and seeing this man made well there's something very sick on the inside of these Pharisees, which brings us again, this main idea, those who feed only their own self-interest, their own self-righteousness, those who only feed their own self-interest, they end up having no part in Christ's feast. So these, these two parables we go on in this dinner scene, and we won't, get, we won't dig into them too deeply, they present just kind of two big ideas. Jesus begins making observations. The first one is their own self-interest in the seats of honor. Everyone's concerned about making sure they're recognized at these dinners. And so they're fighting for the seats of honor. They want to sit up close to the head. They want to sit where people can recognize them. And they love this recognition. They love status. They want to be known. They want to be recognized. There is no humility. There is only this thirst for notoriety, self-interest. They want to be recognized. Is Jesus just giving helpful social advice like, hey, we show up at a party, hang out at the back, and then when the person who's invited you comes in and says, hey, don't stand back there, come on. And then you get recognized. What a great idea that is. Whereas opposed to if you show up at a party and you go hang out with all the bigwigs and they're like, oh, um, can you make room for somebody else more? Is he just giving helpful social advice? And no, he, he is. It's not a bad idea maybe, but that's one way to read it. But what he's, what he's doing is he's pointing out that these men all think too highly of themselves. I mean, really, the underlying current is don't think you're the most important person in the room, which is insulting because every one of them thinks they're the most important person in the room. They are, they are caught up in their own self-interest, in their own notoriety. I can almost guarantee you that the first thought, because I try to put myself in their shoes and let my... Um, hubris uh, rise up what would i think is just i am high on my own pride if i show up at a place and i set myself in the back what's the worst thing that would happen what if the person walked in and they didn't bring you up to the front and you actually had to just stay back at a place of dishonor 
Is there anything worse than that? Not, I mean, I, how, I'm so important. What if I went and just sat in the room and no one recognized me? Well, there's nothing worse than... You can see how they'd be concerned with this pride, this are they getting what they deserve? Are, are they being recognized? There's nothing worse than to be considered as someone beneath where they think they are. They all think too highly of themselves. And when that is your mindset, it is a giant obstacle to the gospel. When you think of yourself in this high exalted place, whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. Whoever exalts themselves will be humbled. When you have that mindset about yourself, it is a major hurdle to the gospel. No one comes to Christ puffing their chest out in in self-sufficient pride. Look at me, Jesus, don't you? No one comes to Christ riding on their high horse. To be saved is to know yourself in desperate need of saving. It is penitent faith in Christ, repentant faith, trusting in Christ, not in your own self. To be saved is to know yourself as one in need of saving. And these men do not know of such need. That's not a thought in their head. They, They believe themselves. They are only aware of, the only thought in their head is, I should be recognized. Look at me. They have no humility. They are only interested in feeding their own self-interest, their own self-righteousness, their own self-sufficiency. They're only interested in feeding thoughts of self. And the second parable is no better. It's a commentary on, on what the real purpose of the meals that those who are interested um, in themselves throw. They, they throw this party. Why? So that someone can repeat the favor. Right, he's saying you invite your relatives. It isn't saying um, no longer, no more family parties. Anybody, sorry. When Christmas is here, don't you dare invite your children and their spouses and everyone else over, because Jesus says don't throw a party and invite your family. No, that's 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 not the right context. That's not that's not what Jesus is saying at all. But he is making this point of these Pharisees are throwing these parties and inviting all the bigwigs, so that when all the bigwigs had their parties. They'd get invited back. It was nothing really. It was there was no true desire to bless or anything like that in these parties. They were just serving self, even in these parties. And those who feed only their own self-interest will have no part in Christ's feast. This is the point that Jesus is making. They have their parties to see what those who they invite will repay them with. In verse 15, it's some guy, it's funny, you'll, you'll see these moments in scripture where the person who's getting beat up by the words of Jesus will attempt to, uh, to kind of turn it on its head. So they're getting beat up pretty bad in their hypocrisy and their self-service. Somebody says, that's right, Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God and hoping to get kind of a, yeah, amen, and kind of like, you know, make it a little easier, more palatable, cut the tension in the room. And Jesus doesn't hear it. He goes on with this further description of inviting people and they're all too busy with their own little projects to make it to the feast. They're all too busy with their self-interested projects. This guy had bought land and he wants to go look at it. This guy, the guy had bought oxen and he wants to go look at it. This other guy, he just got married and he's, he wants to be with his, he doesn't have time for the master's feast. They're all caught up 
no, with all of their excuses and duties, which none of them are really that that you can't come to the meal for. They give these things as excuses, but it's clear they have no interest in the great banquet that they've been invited to. This is the state that everyone consumed with feeding their own self-interest finds themselves. They are turning the master away when he has something truly worthwhile to give them. I've got this thing I'm doing. I've got this thing I'm interested in. I, I believe this is best for me. The desires that I have are for this thing. I don't care what the invitation is. I don't care how great the invitation may say that it is. I'm going to feed my own self-interest. And when that is your mindset, feeding those who feed only their own self-interest, they find themselves having no part in Christ's feast. And this is what happens. The master says at the end of the feast, none of those who I've invited who have found themselves too busy for me will enter into the feast. They are truly only interested in what they have got for themselves and they will, they will, what they can do for themselves. Only interested in what they have for themselves and what they can do for themselves. They have no desire for the feast that is truly given by grace. And so they totally miss out on it. One of the reasons I think you can skip that you see this hesitation why, why grace is so dangerous. Grace is dangerous. We don't think of it this way, but the grace of God is dangerous because when, when you go to a meal where you're paying meals back and forth, then, then you kind of, you know, you're trading, you're trading back and forth. Yeah, you'll feed me, I'll feed you later. There's kind of this reciprocation going on. But when the, when the meal of the master, when, you're the, when you see yourself as the blind, the beggar, the hopeless, the helpless, out in the hedges and the highways, being called in and given this extravagant meal because you don't deserve it, have no way to repay it, that makes you in incredible debt to the grace of the master. And so these people, in many ways, do not want to respond because grace is dangerous. The gift, the banquet that is given by this master is so great to those who are so undeserving that it puts you in a position of you have to face your true humility and you have to have nothing more than gratitude. There's no, I'll get you back later, great master for this great banquet. It just leaves you with thanksgiving. We are a culture that is distracted with a thousand petty things of self-interest with no desire to partake of the significant things Christ is putting before us. The feast that Christ has is a feast of satisfaction. This, this feast, this, isn't, this, this is the banquet that, that the master is spreading. They've been preparing for weeks for this banquet, sending out invitations. This is a banquet of, is, is, the, describing it is that, is to inform us of the sufficiency of what the master is inviting them into. Do you have deep desires? Do you have deep longings? Do you yearn for something significant and something of purpose? Christ is offering something of significance. Christ is offering to fulfill something of, of deep longings for those who will turn off their self-interest and in humility come to the meal that Christ has offered. Where do you land when it comes to the feast that Christ lays before you? Are you so consumed, are we so consumed with feeding our own self-interest that we have no eyes for the feast of eternal life and joy in God 
that Christ is spreading before us. The Pharisees, these righteous people, these Pharisees were so were convinced they had no need of this gracious invitation. They thought they knew that they deserved it. They had no humility and therefore they missed gospel 101. That you, no one comes to Christ with anything other than empty hands to receive. No one comes to Christ offering anything. We come by grace, bringing nothing and receiving everything that God has for us in Christ. But do not forget, those who come to Christ with empty hands do not leave with empty hands. Their empty hands will not stay that way. There is a future feast that the king is planning to throw. The future feast is shadowed in some ways, foreshadowed in our communion meal. As we gather together, we partake of the body and blood of Christ. Christ told his disciples, I will not eat of this bread or drink of this cup until the day I drink with you, with, drink it with you if new in my Father's kingdom. There is a future feast that is coming for those in Christ. Here we come to communion with empty hands to receive having no merit of our own to shine up to Christ. Look what we have done. Look at our righteousness. Look at our self-sufficiency. We come laid low, looking to Christ and His righteousness to partake of the meal that He offers. This meal is for those who have heard the call to come into the great feast and have yielded to the grace of God. One day, everyone who partakes of this meal by faith in Christ will one day eat and drink with Christ himself. On that day, we'll be glad that we are, have empty, that our empty hands were filled with the merits of Christ because we will have the fullness of his joy manifested before us. We will rejoice that we were the beggars, the blind, the lame, the helpless, out in the highway and hedges who had no right to come into the feast. But because of God's grace and his mercy, the invitation came, compelling us, compelling all those who were out and with beyond help to come into the feast through the work of Christ. We know that the invitation is this. Christ came to earth, lived the righteous life we should have lived, died the death that we deserved, right? So that through repentance and faith, admitting our humility, admitting our sinfulness, trusting in Christ, we would be accepted into the banquet would be a way to say it. Brought in to God's great feast, reconciled to him and brought into his family. And in the communion meal, we foreshadow, we remember this great feast. We look forward to the great feast that is coming. And until that day, we cling to Christ, knowing his invitation is not an empty invitation into the meal that he is preparing, in the feast that he is preparing. Let's pray. Father, help us. Give us your spirit. There is, there are so many poles in our, our sin nature to be consumed with self-interest, self-sufficiency, and not coming to you as the reality of who we are. We are the beggars. We are the ones in the highways, in the hedges, who have no reason to make it into this meal. But through the work of your son, We find ourselves accepted into this great banquet as not just, and and then once we are there, as, as part of the family. 
Father, may we see this. May this be our joy. May this be our hope. May this be our assurance. May this be our peace through all the days that we have on this earth until we finally do see and enjoy with you that great feast on the final day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.